Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, December the 14th, 2021. It is currently 6.05 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Empty Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And all I can say right now is I'm a little overwhelmed. According to some of the emails I've received, you're a little overwhelmed because we have a difficult chapter to study this week. I know it's Tuesday, right? So so this is early on in this week's Bible study, right? Now, for those who may be brand new, this week we are studying Isaiah chapter 9, which well, continues our study. We started, uh, we did a week in Isaiah 7. We did a week in Isaiah chapter 8. Now we're spending a week in Isaiah chapter 9. I don't know if we've even answered, I don't think we've even answered all of the questions and all of the issues in chapter 7 or chapter 8. But we did as, I think we did a, a decent job. Everyone worked together. Everyone put on their thinking caps. We really worked on the text, studied the text. It led to what, two different sermons preached here. Uh, at the uh, the pulpit here in Victory ba- uh, at at Victory Baptist Church, the pulpit that I'm currently looking at, uh, it it definitely it I, I hope that that really added to the study and really benefited us. And obviously, I think this is going to lead to a sermon as well in Isaiah chapter nine. It may lead to multiple sermons in Isaiah chapter nine, but the, these these are complicated chapters. And what. On one hand, I I love the fact that they're complicated. I really do, because it really challenges us to dig in. On the other hand, it really frustrates me because if I mean, if you don't believe me, in fact, what we what we may do is we may pick a day. Um, I don't know when, but we'll try to do this soon. And I'm just gonna like pick a random sermon from Isaiah seven, a random sermon from Isaiah eight, maybe a random ser- sermon from Isaiah nine from just, you know, just random ministries. And then we will review these sermons just to show you how so many times these chapters are handled. They're handled like, hey, it's not really that, it's not really that big of a problem. Look, you know, basically the pastor will come and say, here's what you need to know. Now let's focus on Isaiah 7, 14, Jesus. Let's focus here on, on Isaiah 9 verses starting at what? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in many cases, they really, they, they, will, they will deal with their surrounding things. They will just try to summarize it as nice and easy as they can. In many cases, ignoring the fact that there can be 15 commentaries that disagree with that perspective, they will just overlook all of that. Make it nice, make it simple, make it easy, because, hey, we don't want to confuse everyone. And, 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 and I hate to say this, many pastors are more concerned with having a sermon than with actually teaching the Bible. I want to make this very clear. There is a difference between having a sermon and really getting people to dig into the text of Scripture. Because sometimes digging into the text of Scripture, it doesn't make for a wonderful sermon where you have that great introduction, you've got your three points, you've got your moving conclusion. No, a lot of a lot of people when they go to church, they want to hear that. They don't want to hear, okay, guys, let's, okay, let, what about this? And let's think about this and let's look this up and let, okay, let's all work together. No, they're not, what, what, what I typically hear when people hear the way I try to work through the text with my people is that's not church. That's, that, that's a seminary classroom. And I'm like, well, what is seminary supposed to do? Equip people for ministry. What is the church supposed to be doing? Oh yeah, equipping people for ministry. So there should be a little bit of seminary-like happening from the pulpit, right? And I know that I I know that that it doesn't work for everyone. So here's what I will say: there needs to be churches where there is an alternative for people who really want to dig into the text. But some of these texts, if you just go for the sermon and not for really dig, taking your people through all of the nuances and problems and difficulties and questions and really getting them involved in the process, I think you're doing them a disservice. I think you're giving them a sense of certainty at the expense of truth. These are complicated issues. These are difficult chapters. And it, it drives me crazy to hear so much preaching on these on these chapters, and it's just like, wait, what? 
What? Did you did you just ignore all of the difficult? Okay, well, and in many cases, they just ripped these verses right out of context, right? Right out of context. And we're going to make it about Jesus. Okay, well, what in the world was going on back then? Who, who, we see Ahaz, and I got the king of Syria, and I got the king of Israel, and I got the king of Assyria, and I got conflicts, and I got a confederacy, and I got destruction, and I got prophecy, and I got kids with strange names. What in the world is going on? And it's almost like those people, here's what bothers me. I mean, obviously a lot of things bother me, okay? When I say, here's what bothers me, I've already said, here's what bothers me. A lot of things bother me, but one of many of the things that bother me is that so many times it feels like in the preaching, the people who this was actually written to, the people who are actually mentioned, they almost become secondary, Like It's the sermon that's prime. I need a sermon and I got to make it practical to my people. Now, there are times after you've worked through all of the issues that, yes, there's something in the text that screams, this is practical, this is applicable, and then by all means, preach that. But you got to get through all of the difficulty before you can preach that. And some people just want to preach instead of actually working through the text. And, And I just hate when the original people just get ignored. They're like, you know, well, who really cares about them? And who cares about Judah? And who cares about Israel? And who cares about the Assyrians? And who cares about the Syrians? And who cares about Ahaz? And who really cares about Israel or Isaiah's sons? Who cares? Because I can't even say their names. Who cares about them? And it's like, wait a minute. They're, they're central to the whole narrative. Okay. They're, no, they're like, but Jesus, is, is, there's Jesus right there. I, I, I'm not saying that that's not a prophecy of Jesus. But you do realize he may be mentioned in one verse and he got all these other people mentioned in all the other verses. Should we not be concerned with how they play a part in the narrative and how we understand this? I, I, I hope we do. But I, I can greatly relate to everyone who I know it's Tuesday. I don't, you know, I don't know how many hours or, or minutes you've been working on Isaiah 9, but I, I feel that right now. I feel the same thing. Like I got ready, when I got ready to, to, to go live this evening, I was like, man, what? how do I approach this? How can I actually help everyone? Because there's some things here I just don't know if I co- correctly understand. And when I start looking at commentaries, I'm like, and clearly they don't know either. Everyone is guessing. So a couple of things just, just to help you out in, in this Bible. Remember, Bible study exercise. I do some of the teaching, but a lot of this I'm just wa- working through. And then if you stick with it, typically at some point I come in and do a lot of teaching or I try to offer a lot of clarification. But I like wa- walking you through the process, okay? Now, it's very important. When you find these chapters where you feel overwhelmed, right? You're like, I don't get this. I don't get this. Here's what, here's what I, I, and this, I, this is a go-to method for me, but you, you may think it's ridiculous. You may think it's crazy. Um, okay. I thought I was getting messages from people on YouTube. I'm like, I'm not even live on YouTube right now. Okay. <laughs> so, so, uh, when I, when I start seeing all these uh, messages pop up, I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? Okay. So it's very important when you get to these passages where it's very complicated, very difficult, you feel overwhelmed, take a deep breath. Get something to drink, grab a notebook because notebooks, that's, that's my security blanket, right? a notebook and a pencil, right? The world, if the world is on fire, right? And everything is crumbling around me. As long as I have a notebook and a pencil, I feel that I'm, I'm okay. I know that's not the spiritual answer because I'm supposed to say, as long as I have my Bible. Okay. I hope, hopefully you understand when I have my notebook and my pencil, it's my security blanket, but it's a very important security blanket when it comes to hermeneutics, because here's what I do. And, and you may think it's a crazy idea, but I, I, I hope it will benefit someone. When you have these chapters, and you're like, I don't understand that. I don't get that. I don't get that. Or you get a chapter that you, you may even think makes sense, but then you start reading the commentaries and you're like, okay, I've got 10 commentaries, 50 different opinions. Nobody has a clue. And, and once and you start, at least for me, I, anxiety starts building. I'm like, well, I've got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. And then I can't sleep and I toss and turn because I need an answer. I need an answer. So what I tend to do is take a deep breath, take a step back. And here's what I do. I start working through the passage, the chapter, and I take a piece of paper in my notebook and I draw a line right down the middle of the page. On one side, I put what we can know 
And then on the other, the other side of the line that I drew down the middle, but what we don't know. All right. So on what I do is I start going through the chapter. I'm like, I don't understand this. I don't know who they are. Is this past tense? Is this present tense? I don't know. Past, present, future. I don't know what's going on here. Nobody seems to be able to agree. And so if all the people who know the original languages don't agree, how am I going to figure it out? I just start writing down all the things I just like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I have no, sometimes it's just like, here's verse two. I don't understand anything about the verse, right? I just start writing down all the things I don't know. Then after I've gotten that down, okay, that's like just venting, okay? That's just me. He's like, I don't get this. I don't get this. Now, by the time you get to the end of that list, you may feel like, what am I going to do, right? You may feel overwhelmed, but then stop and then go back through the chapter and go, I do understand this. I do understand this, this seems to make sense. Write down what seems to make sense. Write down what is clear. Because what is clear sometimes has to become the foundation in which you stand on when you're, when then, this is the way, I, I always describe it this way in a lot of my sermons. Okay, all right, guys, here's what we do know. All right, everybody got it. Here's what we absolutely, we absolutely know. And I usually make people repeat it like 10, 15 times, right? Repeat, what do we know? What do we know? What, number one, number two, what do we know? And then once I get that, I'm like, okay, that's the foundation. That's what we can stand on. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna start climbing up to all of these things in which we don't know. It's gonna get, we're gonna get dizzy. It's gonna get confusing. It's gonna feel like we don't know what's going on and we may fall. We may, we may get all confused and turned upside down, but when we fall, we have a foundation to land on. We do know these things. And sometimes you keep climbing that ladder into the, trying to find those things you don't know. And you get in there and you're like, I'm so confused. I'm so confused. So all, sometimes all you can do is climb back down, drop down on the, on the foundation and say, okay, a week of study, six months of study. And all I have are these things I do know. I still don't know about that. And that's okay. That's okay. I wish preachers believed that was okay. Preachers think it, they, they have to say, no. When preachers start with, everyone acts like this is complicated, but it's not. Oh, that drives me crazy. It's not complicated because you just ignored everyone, found your favorite commentary, found your favorite book, and you just took from that book, you you cut and paste, put it in your own words, and then you act like that you've got it all figured out when in most cases you just took it from a different source that you don't even mention. Okay, it just drives me crazy. Just acknowledge, hey, there's 1,000 commentaries with 25,000 different views. This is difficult. It's okay to say we don't know. It's okay to say we don't know. I want everyone to say that with me. It's okay not to know. Do I want to know? Yes. Do I want to understand everything? Yes. I will argue Isaiah is one of those books that there that when you're finished with it, that there, you're going to have a very long list of things you don't know, nor will you ever know. And I think in some ways, I kind of love that Isaiah 9, by the time you get to Isaiah 9, you're like, okay, I think I got this figured out. Okay, okay, okay. Here's Ahaz, right? So let's just go through this. Isaiah 7, all right, we have... Ahaz, king of Judah. We got two kings coming to him, the king of Syria, the king of Israel, and they're coming to get rid of Ahaz, to destroy him, to remove him, to replace him. And part of the reason is Syria and Israel wants to team up to go against the Assyrians, but Ahaz is more pro the on the Assyrian side. He wants to look to the Assyrians and they want to get rid of Ahaz. So then all that they'll have Judah, Israel, and Syria, then they can go against the Assyrians and get and wipe them out. Ahaz is scared to death. The people of Judah are scared to death. They don't know what to do. God sends Isaiah with his son and says, look, hey, this, it's not going to happen. Remember his son's name means a remnant will return. Hey, it's, look, don't be, a, don't be afraid. Don't be, don't be scared. It's not going to take place. Everything's going to be okay. And just to help you calm down, you can ask for a sign. And Ahaz, covering up his own will by trying to act spiritual, says, hey, I don't need a sign. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. And in reality, he'd already made up his mind. He's going, to, he's going to work and make an alliance with the Assyrians. He's going to make a li- an alliance with the Assyrians. And he's rejecting God's, basically, he's rejecting God. 
He's rejecting God's way. He's rejecting God's will. He's rejecting God's word because he wants his way, his will, and his word. So then Isaiah said, okay, I'll give a sign to the, to the house of David that a virgin will, be, will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. And we believe that sign is ultimately for Judah and it's obviously points to Christ according to the New Testament that points to Jesus Christ. So Ahaz, you didn't want a sign, fine, there you go. But there are some other language used in Isaiah 7 that seems to speak of a child. When a child reaches a, a very young age, when that happens, well, all your problems are going to be taken care of. The king of Israel and the king of Assyria, they're going to, they're going to be taken care of. And you're like, well, wait, what child is that? And we think that's one of Isaiah's children. We, we think that that's the case. It's the only thing that makes any sense. And then we get to chapter eight, and then we have another child introduced. And when that child reaches a certain age, and we think this will correspond with the, the, the about the same time the other child will reach this age, all of these problems are going to be taken care of, Ahaz. They're going to be removed. They're going to be taken care of. You should have trusted me. And Judah, you should have trusted me. But y'all rejected me. Y'all rejected the waters of Shiloh. Y'all rejected it. Y'all wanted basically the mighty Euphrates. You wanted the Assyrians. You rejected me. And then in chapter eight, it's like, okay, the Assyrians that you turn to, what you look to for salvation, that alliance you wanted to take care to, to help you with Israel and Syria. Well, guess what? It's coming in like a flood. It's coming in like a swarm. And it's going to be death. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be, it's going to be problematic. It's going to be painful. And you should have listened. And then God begins to instruct Isaiah, hey, don't listen to the people. Don't listen to them. They're going to find themselves in suffering. Don't listen to them. They're even going to, if we, if we go to uh, Isaiah 8, 19, they're going to seek unto them with familiar spirits under wizards. They're, they're, going, they're going to be looking to answers from wizards. They're going to even look to the dead for answers. They, they are going to be so confused, so in darkness that it's going to be very difficult for them to understand. And then in chapter 8, we, we basically, as we work our way through chapter 8, basically it says, and this, this is very important, chapter 8, verse 22, and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. These people are going to find themselves in darkness. And if this is a literal physical darkness, we definitely know there's going to be a spiritual darkness that they're going to encounter. These people are going to be so confused, so turned upside down because they rejected God. They rejected him. Now, that, that sign to the house of Judah, even though they rejected, that sign is still going to be there. And yes, there was going to come a time that a virgin was going to conceive and bear a son and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with them, because God was going to keep his covenant promise. God was going to keep his promise to the house of David. He was going to keep that promise, even though they refuse and their unfaithfulness, which is praise God for his faithfulness, for his mercy, and for his grace. So we end chapter eight with darkness, darkness. Now, right now, it is currently dark outside the windows of Victory Baptist Church. If I was to turn off the lights right now here in the sanctuary, I would be, I would be complete darkness other than my laptop. It would be, I would be, I mean, it gets dark in here when you turn off the lights. And if I was to go walk around to the back of the building, because I'm in the middle of nowhere, I would be in complete darkness. I, I even did a, I did a podcast episode one evening here at the church. I think it was two summers ago where I literally, I have a, I had a portable microphone and I was literally walking around uh, the church in darkness, just giving this idea of when you're, you can't see, you, you have, you can't perceive anything. And sometimes because you can't perceive and you can't really see what's in front of you, then you can become full of fear paranoia, and all of those things. The people, I mean, the people are in serious, bad shape. Now that brings us to chapter nine. And here's what I love about it. Since the, the context here is the people in darkness, what I love about this is when you start reading chapter nine, a sense of darkness, I think, hits all of us and trying to figure out, wait, what's going on? Wait, when is this going to happen? Wait, 
did it already happen? Wait, did it happen literally? Wait, if it's, if, did it happen spiritually? Wait, if it happened spiritually, well, wait a minute. If that happened spiritually, then why can I just go back a few chapters and say that a real virgin is going to bring forth a son and is going to call his name Emmanuel? What? So how do, wait, did this go figurative and poetic? Like, we, and it just raises hermeneutical questions and, and raise so much. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to read Isaiah 9, 1 through 5. And I'm going to read each verse from different translations, okay? Right. I'm going to go to Isaiah 9. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read each verse and a number of translations so that we can kind of get an idea of what's going on. And I'll show you where I, I I'm going to, I'm going to show you some issues about, so really, this is this is what I'm going to do moving forward. Here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider two things. But I do want you to make that list of what you don't know and what you do know, because I think that will really help turn on the light a little bit. But here's my goal in this episode, all right? Here's my goal. And I know you're like, you just spent 21 minutes repeating so much. I know, but I, I have to keep repeating what, because that gives us what we do know. Right? But here we go. I'm going to try to show you some of the difficulties with just chapter nine verses one through four or one through five, even before we get to six, because there's some prophecies being made here. Are they prophecies of things that had happened? Are they prophecies of things that will happen? If they're prophecies of things that will happen, did they happen in the first coming of Christ? Or were they not fulfilled in the first coming of Christ? Or do we say they were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but they were done so spiritually, figurative? Well, if, if they're done figurative, if they're in a figurative way, not in a literal way, well, then when it says a child in, in verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace thereof shall be no end, and upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. I mean, do we believe that to be literal? Is it going to be a literal child? Literal rule? Literal reign? Well, or is it, well, it's a literal child, but a spiritual reign. Okay, so wait. So part of it's literal, part of it's spiritual. You see, you start running into some major questions. Now, I know pastors like, it's not a problem. Yeah, it's not a problem if you just say it's not a problem and don't mention all of the possible difficulties here. But I think any average person reading this should be asking themselves these questions. So we're gonna, I'm gonna just point out some of these possible issues in verses one through five, even before we get to six. And then, this is big, I really want you to start thinking about the concept of spiritual darkness. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the curriculum, the Bible study curriculum, and we're going to look at this. This is going to be short, but it's it's taking on a little more. But hopefully I'm helping you out here. Every time we do a Bible study exercise, it always takes on its own unique design. It always does. And and either you love it or you hate it or you're indifferent. Well, I hope you're not indifferent. I either want love or hate, not indifference. Okay. But here we go. Are you ready? Let's start working through these verses. I'm going to go through this as quickly as possible because I really want to work on the spiritual darkness concept. All right, here we go. Isaiah chapter nine, verse one. Nevertheless, nevertheless, me in, in, in contrast to this darkness, the people are going to find themselves. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, wait a minute. There's going to be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, is that referencing the people of Judah and distress to the Assyrians? There's there's going to come, well, because, now think about this. If we say, so this, does this have a historical situation where, hey, all of your distress is going to be gone, right? Did that happen historically? Because I know that if it did happen, it had to be very quick, very short, because it's not going to be very, I mean, we're going to go from the time of Isaiah, and, and by the time you open up your New Testament, where's Israel? Where's Judah? They're back under the control of another country. They're, they're under the control of the Romans. And you, we know that what the Jews were looking for was a Messiah to come to get rid of our distress, Get rid of the Romans. That's what they wanted. So was this fulfilled historically? Was it fulfilled when Jesus came? 
Now, this is where you have to get very figurative and start saying, well, distress there. And this is how some people will start working it. Just, and I'm not saying they would say this exact thing at this exact point, but just to show you where they start thinking, oh, their distress about their sin is going to be taken care of because Jesus is coming. Whoa, slow down. Okay. This has been talking about literal nations, literal distress because literal invasions. Okay. That's what this has been talking about. So, so wait, is there a time coming? When Israel will no longer be under distress of countries trying to invade them, destroy them, they will no longer have the distress of a possible war. Please see the previous live broadcast that we just did. Okay, All right. So, what if that's the case? When when would that be referring to? Just just I'm just I'm just going to break it down and ask those kinds of questions. But right, here we go. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are who were in distress. Please note. Now you get to this past tense. Like, how do we, how do we understand this? Okay. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. All right. So there, there, there's a time of distress. Now this seems to clearly look forward, but the time is coming that there's going to be honor for what he calls Galilee of the nations. New Living Translation. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Hey, these places are humbled, but there's coming a, a, a time that in this place, they're going to be filled with glory. All of the distress is going to be gone. Now, is that first coming, second coming? What, what, what's going to fill, be filled with glory? ESV. But there, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, the ESV led someone, uh, someone in my church actually, uh, came up, I think it was after it was after Sunday school. And because a lot of times after Sunday school or, or after church, a lot of times there's good discussions happen. Sometimes I want to leave the microphone on for y'all to hear all of the discussions that happen after Sunday school or after a sermon, because sometimes those are absolutely golden. Those, those are, those are, oh, I always love it because that shows people are engaged. So, but someone brought up, well, wait a minute, that because the ESV says her, but there will be no gloom for her, who was in anguish, they're like, well, wait a minute. Is this some prophetic picture pointing to Mary? But the her there has to, to, to me, goes back to the people who are in distress. And would that not be Judah suffering the consequences of the Assyrians coming in? Or do you have a different idea? Because they've already mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Which were two tribes that were a part of the Northern Kingdom. Correct. So the northern kingdom is going to be humbled, taken away, gone. Judah is still going to be present, but they're going to be suffering. So, but it's just interesting when, because the ESV translates it her, it's just interesting how people read different things, right? People will read something and it's just interesting how their minds think. And, and, and so what I, I didn't want to give anyone, I didn't want to give the person any answers because if you know, there's one thing about me, I don't like to give people answers. I like to give people hermeneutical principles. So I said, well, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you start worrying about Mary, before you start worrying about anything in the New Testament, you need to spend the time figuring out the who, what, where, when of this chapter. You need to see its historical context, who it's talking about. What did it mean for them um, to try to get them, well, to correct jumping to where I don't think they should have been jumping. But it's so easy to do that uh, because we're. it's almost like, you know, it, it, the way, you know, it, I hate to say this, but it's almost a joke. You know, you take a kid who's raised in a, a church, raised in a Christian home, and you're like, okay, here's a Bible verse. What is it about? Jesus. And you're like, uh, whoa, slow down. And, there, and some Christians almost teach our hermeneutic that every verse is about Jesus. And I think that that's massively problematic. Look, there are verses that are clearly about Jesus. And there are verses that are about historical situations, people and their setting and their time, and that's what it's about. 
and we we can't just make it about something we want it to be about because we've we've thrown a hermeneutic upon the text. And they'll say, well, didn't Jesus say the Old Testament was about him? He testified of those things in the Old Testament that were about him. That doesn't mean every single verse was, okay? So let's let's be careful how we handle that. I know that's going to create controversy. I'm going to get 900 emails, but that's okay. Um, you can you can disagree. That's fine. You go along with, you can go with your form of hermeneutics. I just, I, I just think there's a problem there. But okay, Berean Study Bible. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. See, now, it's just it, weird that the ESV says, for her who is in anguish. It is just interesting that the ESV goes there because all the other ones clearly like, for those, for, for this people who are in distress seems to be the idea. But all right. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So these people were humbled. These people are in distress, but the time is coming that there's going to be honor. There's going to be glory for this particular region. And it seems to be very specific in the region mentioned there. All right. Um, and if you, uh, they, they mentioned the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Um, and let's see if they name, do they name? Okay. Let's see here. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the region afterwards known as the uh, Upper and Lower Galilee, had been laid to waste and spoiled by Tiglath Pilneser, if I say his name right. And I think you can read about that in 2 Kings 15. That same region describes the prophet in different terms. The former representing the tribal divisions, the latter, the geographical, is hereafter to be the scene of a glory greater than Israel had ever known before. Right? Now, I don't get very specific where the, the region is. You see here, um, then they they mentioned in this, uh, this commentary, the sea, they talk about the Sea of Galilee, uh, the track east of the sea and the upper Jordan, where the 5,000 were fed and where our Lord was transfigured. Galilee of the nations, and the name Galilee seems to have been given to the outlying circuit or zone on the north, which was debatable ground between the Israelites and their neighbors. The word meaning circuit or ring, though claimed as theirs by the Israelites, it was largely populated by the Gentiles. So, they, they, they name some, there's some dis, discussion about these areas, but I think we can all, I think most commentaries agree this would be area where Jesus is going to minister and be, and, and be, do different things and different miracles. So, then that area, there's, what well, there's going to be some kind of glory, some kind of honor, because while it would be great honor and great glory to be the area where the eternal Son of God is going to enter into human history and in human flesh to walk, talk, and be amongst the people. I think we could all agree that would be great honor. So that would be pointing ultimately then to Jesus, right? Okay, let, let, let's, let's continue. There's, there's a lot of other things they say about the region and land there. I, I don't want to give everything away. Just at least get you going in that direction. That's something, that's something you may be able to be dogmatic about and put in your column. We do know what area this refers to. And if you think you can at least narrow it down, focus on that. You maybe want to be focusing on other things. Focus on that because that will be one of those things you can say, okay, that, that's the region. No question about it. We may be off by 10, 15, 20 miles, but this is the general region, all right? Now, Isaiah 9, 2. We'll start with some different translations. Here we go. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now we get right back to, okay, when are they, when did the people see this light? When do they see this light? Now, if we put it referring to Jesus, these people haven't seen the light and will not see the light. In fact, those people alive will never see the light. But to the house of David, 
and that particular area, they will see the light. It's like, it's a certain fact. They will see the light, and then that light would have to be a reference to Jesus Christ. Correct? Now, if you you try to look for, well, they saw the light. Do you go back to one of Isaiah's sons? Were they a, a small light? Right, but but they didn't really, those sons really didn't have anything to do ultimately with the giving any, oh, well, I guess a remnant will return. Well, that's even not even super helpful. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if, if they would really be of much benefit to the situation they were facing with the Assyrians causing all of this problem. All right, the ESV, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. All right, you get, they're, they're, all of the translations basically say, uh, the whole the whole concept. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of commentaries here. The words, uh, the people that walked in darkness, the words throw us back upon Isaiah 8, 21 through 22. The prophet sees in his vision a light shining on the forlorn and weary wanderers. They have been wandering in the valley of the shadows of death. That phrase comes from Psalm 23, 4. Almost in the gloom of Sheol itself, Now these breaks in the dawn of a glorious day. Historically, the return of some of the inhabitants of that region to their allegiance to Jehovah and the house of David may have been the starting point of the prophet's hopes. So in other words, there was was at least some, a remnant did kind of return back to God after they ignored, ignored God, walked away from him. There was at least a, a remnant that came back, but I don't think that would really be the light, but maybe, maybe so possibly. Uh, many have, have been, may have been the starting point of the prophet's hopes. The words have to the Christian student a special interest uh, as having been quoted by St. Matthew. Now they reference Matthew 4, 15 through 16, connection with our Lord's ministry in Galilee, perhaps with his being of Nazareth, which was in the tribe of Zebulun. We cannot positively say that such a fulfillment as that was in the prophet's thoughts. The context shows that he was thinking of Assyrian invasions and the defeat of Assyrian armies of a nation growing strong in number and prosperity. And this, as in other cases, the evangelist adapts the words of the prophecy to a further meaning. Now, everyone, so they quote Matthew 4, 15 through 16. Let's take a look at this. Matthew 4. Let's just take a look here. Matthew 4. All right. We'll start in verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into, drumroll please, Galilee. All right, now, see, because this may very much narrow down that. Look, it's speaking about a literal place, Galilee, a literal specific land. Now, if this is the case, then you're, you're once again, you got to be careful. Like, well, that part's figurative. Well, wait a minute. If this is a literal land, Speaking of a literal situation where a literal person is there, then you've got to take the, these these prophecies as being literal, which I've got to repeat over and over and over and over again, right? Verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast and the borders of Zebulon and Naphtalim, is the way it's written here in the King James. Okay, Zebulun and Naphtali, right? As we read about in here. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung upon is sprung up up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no question about it. Matthew, the New Testament writer says, this fulfills the prophecy. 
So whatever historical fulfillment, you can spend hours trying to figure it out. Go, well, what does it have to say with them? Remember, this is so important to understand in Isaiah 9. Remember, Judah and Ahaz had rejected God's signs. They had rejected the signs given to them, and that would be the prophet of Isaiah's sons. Remember, he referred to them as signs. They rejected it. They rejected the waters of Shiloh. They didn't want it. So ultimately, the signs go to Judah because God was going to preserve Judah. A remnant would remain. He would protect them. He would preserve them. He would get rid of the people threatening them. But And he would keep his ultimate promise to them that a king from the line of David would come, would rule, would reign, would conquer, would defeat, would do those things. And he kept those promises. And so some of those prophecies, I know a lot of times, well, what is it? That has nothing to do for those people. They rejected what God offered them. They didn't want his signs, even though he still gave them signs and he, and he fulfilled the prophecy that those signs pointed to. He got rid of Israel. He got rid of the king of Syria. He took care of that. But then there were signs that had further implications for Judah itself. And so I think that that's very important. So that that really helps clarify that what some of this is definitely referring to. Some of this, clearly, uh, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And just remember, Judah was still in darkness. I mean, think about it. At the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, you have basically, what, 400 years of silence. There's no prophet sent to Judah there's nothing. There's no word from God. They are in darkness. They are in silence. There is silence from God. They, 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 nobody hears anything until, well, the announcement is made to Mary that, to, to, that hey, you're, you're going to have a son. Okay, you, you, have, you have silence until all of that. Well, you could, you could start back with John the Baptist. Well, you, you get the idea. Until we open up the words of the New Testament and we start seeing now God reveal himself to bring about the ultimate fulfillment, that here comes the one, here comes the light. Here comes the one that's going to bring honor and glory. Here's, here's the one who's well, going to sit on the throne in a sense, right? There, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, of good stuff going on there, okay? Then verse three. Oh, man, we're not going to get to this. All right, here we go. Verse three. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people. Rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now, this is where like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so we, we, we can make sense of here's the area. We'll just say Galilee. A light's coming and that's Jesus, according to Matthew 4. He's there. He ministers in that area and he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, we have fulfillment. Makes perfect sense. All right, let's just stop right there. So many times in Isaiah, you're like, okay, I've got it. It makes perfect sense. And then you read the next verse. You're like, now what in the world is going on? So you have to ask yourself some questions. Wait a minute, you've enlarged the nation? Enlarged the nation in what way? increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Were the people rejoicing? Were the people happy to see Jesus? For the most part, they didn't even know he was being, it was born. And then as his earthly ministry begins, there's some rejoicing, which then turns to crucify him. So does that fit the first coming? How, how do we understand this? Uh, the New Living Translation, you will, en you will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, right? So you have, you will, please note, even in the English translations, there's you have, you will. Wait, we know that the first part there is about Jesus so is it saying that like this is a done deal? Speaking of something in the future as past to demonstrate how the certainty of it? Maybe, possibly. Let me, uh, oh, we're going to run out of time here. Okay, let me, 
I'm going to go down here to a couple of, just a couple of commentaries here because I think they have no clue what's going on either, all right? Uh, Thou hast increased its joy. The picture is one of unmingled brightness, the return as of a golden age, the population growing to an extent never attained before and scarcely admits of the dark shadow introduced by the reading of the text, unless with some critics, we see in the words a contrast between the outward prosperity of the days of Solomon and Uzziah, in which there was no permanent joy, and the abundance of joyfulness under the ideal king. Well, wait a minute. Jesus has come. He is the ideal king, but he's not coming to rule and reign. So are you saying the ideal joy they will find in his spiritual kingdom? That he's going to enlarge these people and it's not to be understood that there's going to be an enlargement and joy spiritually for those who follow this king who's coming, the light that's going to come into this area. Um, the pulpit commentary, uh, thou hast multipl- multi- uh, multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Uh, now there's a, a lot of discussion here about, wait a minute, which tense, past tense, present tense, there is, there is dispute here about trying to figure that out. I, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm just, I just got to throw this out there. Now, I know, I know those who are all millennial reformed, you're going to be like, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. I know that. Just take a deep breath. Is it possible that Jesus is that light that came into the region and he preached? They ultimately reject him. They ultimately say crucify him. They ultimately say they don't want any other, they have no other king over them other than Caesar. They don't want, they don't want him. They reject him. And then pain, suffering, they're going to go back. Then 70 AD, Israel's, you know, wiped off, you know, gone. Uh, Judaism for, you know, the temple, everything's gone. In a sense, they're in darkness. In a sense, they've been set aside. And then, if we, if we, there will come a time that Jesus will come back and literally rule and reign in Jerusalem. If we go with a, a literal millennial reign, and then there Israel will increase. There will be joy because their king will be ruling and reigning and all of their promises, all of the land, everything that's been promised to them. The lamb will lay down with the lion. Their, their, the, the desert will bloom. The, the harvest will be plentiful. There will be, they will have everything. That, and for that thousand year reign, everything will be as fulfilled as spoken of in these areas. Does it jump here? And say, okay, the light's coming, and then this is what he will do, right? That he, that the 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 the, the it's going to be it's going to be like people rejoicing over the joy of the harvest, and when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff is of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. As if you go back and read the story of Midian, as he gained that victory and defeated the oppressor, that's what. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to ultimately destroy their oppressors. He's going to remove their burden. But did he do that in the first kingdom? He didn't. And that, that, was the, that was the whole problem. They wanted him to get rid of their burden. They wanted him to get rid of the oppressor. They wanted him to get rid of the Romans. And it's like, but my kingdom is not of this earth. That's not what I've come to do. Now, some will say this is fulfilled spiritually, but did he remove sin from Israel? They're st- they, they, they're still in their sin. They still rejected him. I said, well, he made it available. It doesn't seem to speak of it as he's going to make freedom available that he actually accomplished it. Now, when Jesus comes back, if we believe in a literal reign, he will come back. He's going to defeat. There's going to be death and destruction and he's going to s- rule in Israel and all of Israel's enemies will be gone. They will be free. They will be, they will rule and reign with him. All Israel will be saved if we, if we understand that concept in the book of Romans. The, the Israel will be brought back in. They will get the land. They will rule, rule and reign with him. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't theological implications and issues with that concept, but I'm saying it does ex, explain some of these passages, right? It does. Because how else? Because clearly he didn't do that in the first coming. 
I mean, and and again, when did when did he free them from all of their oppressors? I mean, Israel was under oppression. Judah was under constant issues over and over and over and over and over and over. And then when you open up the New Testament, they're under the, the they, they, they have the Romans to deal with. And then 70 AD, the, the complete destruction. So when, when did he get rid of them? Never. So then you have to go full-blown spiritual and say, well, it's not real oppressor. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not a real yoke. It's a spiritual yoke. It's not a real burden. It's a spiritual burden. Um, and and he's the rod of his oppressor is not a real physical. You got to go all spiritual. If you go all spiritual, then why say that that's really Jesus really coming into Galilee? If 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 that's Jesus coming into Galilee, you have someone real in the flesh and a real land. So then why make everything else spiritual? Like what what is your hermeneutical principle? Well, I don't like that because that could possibly infer a millennial kingdom. So I'm going to reject that. That's not the way you do hermeneutics. And then verse five, for every battle of the warrior with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Now, verse five seems very interesting. And let's, let's read verse five in a number of translations here. All right, we already read four. Um, let's go to five. So every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for fire. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All right, now what is going on here? All right, um, Every So I'm going to just two quick uh, commentaries here. Every boot of the warrior that tramps noisily and the cloak rolled in blood are shall be burning as fuel for fire. The picture of the conquerors collecting the spoil is continued from Isaiah 9.3. The victory is decisive and the reign of peace begins and the weapons of war... The garments red with blood, the heavy boots that make the earth ring with the warrior's tread, these shall be burnt up. In other words, all war is over. It's now peace. The war is ended. All of that stuff that pertains to war can be burnt up and destroyed. Well, that did not happen in Jesus' first coming. Because in 70 AD, well, Jerusalem is surrounded, conquered, the temple is burnt, destruction, and Judaism as was existed, well, still doesn't exist again. And Israel, even today, still is not at peace. There's, there's always threats. So do you make that now? So, what, now? If you get a Matthew Henry commentary, he'll go full-blown. No, that's the, that, see, that's the power of the gospel. This is, this is Jesus saving us from our sins, and it's going to be all trying to make it all about the gospel and salvation, but that has to have something to do with for the people who were in darkness. Judah, their time is coming. The, the light is going to shine. You're in darkness. You may experience even more darkness, but the light, it will be there. And there's going to come a time that your, the king will return and will set up that kingdom and all the war will be over and there will be peace. Now, I know you can say, but at the end of the thousand years, there's another conflict. I know that's what causes lots of issues. We're trying to figure all of this out. All right. Now that gets us down to verse five, right? It doesn't get us, it doesn't fix everything, but at least it kind of gets us some things to think about. But here's what we're going to do. Oh, I'm going to go to the Bible study curriculum really quick. Right. I'm going to go to the uh, Bible study curriculum. Again, anyone listening, you can get access to this. All you have to do is you can just email me and say, I want access to the Bible study curriculum. It's absolutely free. Uh, you email me and uh, I'll send you the link. All right. Let me go back in. It timed out because remember it was supposed to be 30 minutes, <laughs> but it, it did. It, it's longer than 30 minutes. Okay. Here we go. As always, everything goes longer. I can't turn on the microphone and, and not go for at least an hour. All right, here we go. I'm going to open this up. All right. Now, I'm not going to be able to go as far into this as I wanted to go. All right. I really wanted to work through the curriculum today. But the curriculum is there for you to supplement everything we do. But I've got five minutes to try to, to jump to this point. All right, here we go. All right. 
the, I'm looking at the adult leader guide for the curriculum for this week's Bible study on Isaiah chapter 9. Here's what we read. The nation of Judah, and I posted this in the uh, Discord channel, which is why you should join our Discord channel. All right, here we go. The nation of Judah was living in spiritual darkness because of their rebellion against their God. After God had punished and purified them, he would pardon them and send the light of his redemption. All right, now, I'm not going to read everything else they have to say because there's a lot here to unpack. But that when I read the term spiritual darkness, it got me thinking. How do we understand the concept of spiritual darkness? So I did a search and looked for an article on, uh, see, do I have it here? Did I save it in my notes? I hope I saved it in my notes. Let me look here. If I don't, I'll just have to paraphrase. Okay, here we go. Let's look here. Um, oh, here it is. I got it saved right here. I did save it along about 15 other uh, news stories that we were supposed to talk about tonight, but we didn't get to. All right. Uh, what is spiritual darkness? Spiritual darkness is the state of a person who is living apart from God. The Old Testament book of Isaiah and prophesying of the Messiah speaks of a deep spiritual darkness that enveloped the people. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness as light has dawned, all right? And then they'll go talk about a lot of things we've already talked about. But here's what I want you to consider, all right? So I try to help you with, I think, some things we can be sure of. I try to give you some things that I'm not, I cannot be dogmatic about, but I think that at least gives you a better understanding of Isaiah 9, 1 through 5, hopefully, right? And I, I gave you some of the possible solutions and how to at least interpret some of that. Now, here's what I want you to think about in spiritual darkness, all right? Now, I know this is going to be controversial, and I know your immediate reaction is going to be like, absolutely not, but just stay with me here. Spiritual darkness, if it is defined as basically anyone living apart from God, my question is this, can a person be in spiritual darkness and yet still be saved? Now, I know your initial response is like, absolutely not. If someone is in spiritual darkness, they are not saved. Slow down. Because is it not possible for someone to be saved, but be in, in a sense, not living in right relationship with God? Their fellowship with God has been broken and they're not in right relationship with God. They are in a right position with God because their position is determined by an imputed righteousness. But the way they're living they're in a, a, a time of spiritual darkness. I, now, I, I know that, that you're going to immediately say no, but you have to ask yourself this question. First of all, how when you say that a person cannot be in spiritual darkness, you have to start playing games. Well, well I mean, a, people can be, a person can be in a time of confusion. They can be in a time of, of if you don't even want to use the term backslidden, they can be in a time of of living in grievous sin. I mean, even the London Baptist Confession of Faith says that as a believer that we can fall into grievous sin, serious, serious sin. And that doesn't mean that we're not a believer because again, my salvation is determined by an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness, because if it's determined by a practical righteousness, that's a salvation by works. I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. So how can we understand, like, if, can I, can I, can you know someone who is saved, but they're going through a period of spiritual darkness. They seem confused. They seem to be going the wrong way. They seem to be more preoccupied with their way, their will. They just seem to be wandering around in the darkness. Have you experienced that? A time of just confused spiritual darkness. I believe I've gone through that where I just, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what was going on, but I was clearly not and I was not walking in a sense in the light. I was in spiritual darkness. Now, I do believe that for a true child of God, God will obviously bring chastisement and at some point, wait, you know, pull us out of that. I think in some way, either by just the consequences of our own sin, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through, through the study of God's word, we're going we're gonna to be woken up out of it. But I just, I want us to just see like, in what ways could you think about it this way? Before we even worry about anybody else, in what way 
could you yourself, as a Christian, find yourself in spiritual darkness? And what can you do to prevent it? And what can you do to to get yourself out of it? Here's just a church history situation that I think clearly proves this. You can, you can go, you can spend, and a lot of people try to do this. They spend forever going, well, okay, I know Luther started the Protestant Reformation, but let's just remember before Luther, there was, there was, there was always a group out there and they always try to find some group say, see, they were preaching the truth and see, they were preaching the truth. And then sometimes when you go study those groups, you're like, you're going to claim them. Okay. They were, they did this and they did this and, and like, well, okay, well, not all of them. I'm just going to tell you this. When you go back to that period of time, it's hard not to realize that the church at large, Christians at large, were living in a time of some form of spiritual darkness. I think it would be foolish not to say that they weren't. I think as the church, I think as Christians, we can find ourselves in spiritual darkness. What, how do we end up there? I mean, Judah, I mean, we know where, how Judah ends up in this darkness. They rejected God's word. Ahaz, they all rejected God's word. That's how they ended up in spiritual darkness. So is it for every, when we abandon God's word, I'm going to just throw this out there. When we abandon God's word, and when I say abandon it, we don't read it. We're not passionate about it. We're not studying it. We don't care about listening to the word of God preach. We become spiritually apathetic, spiritually complacent. We are not feeding upon God's word. And God's word is the lamp. It's a light. I think we then find ourselves walking in, in some form of spiritual darkness. Now, I understand darkness, walking in the dark is, is associated with being lost. I'm, by all means, I understand that. But I think there is some level, some degree where a Christian can be stumbling around in the dark. And it's because they begin to ignore God's word, grow bored with God's word, become complacent in it, not caring about it, not memorizing it, not studying it. And I think that I think the church has been stumbling around in darkness for a few years now at church at large. But you can tell me what you think. I, I want to go more into discussing spiritual darkness, but well, we're 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 out of time. We're out of time. All right. So oh, there's so much more I would like to say. You can all any I, I and I'm not gonna give you any more assignments right now. Um you can you can just think about everything we've talked about. You can work through one through five again, you can ask questions, and then we can start. And then you can slowly start transitioning and looking at verse six and go, wait a minute. So verse six now identifies the light, right? There's that light that's going to show up in Galilee, right? He's going to do all of these things. And then the light is identified in verse six, giving you a possible, right? The light, uh, the, the, the light, how would we describe verse one through five? Uh, the arrival of the light, chapter nine, verses one through five, the identity of the light, verse six and follow, for six and following. I don't know where I would stop it. And then I'm just throwing out a possible outline. You know, I love to do that. All right. I'd love to get your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Just, just start sending me all the emails you want. If you're in the Theology Central Discord channel, just start, boom. Just start throwing everything you can at me. Boom, boom, boom. I won't be answering it right now because I don't know if you can hear, my stomach is growling and I need to go home. And I got to go walk in the darkness and then I'll start my car and turn on the light and then drive home through the darkness, hoping not to hit any wild animals. I know you think that's crazy, but the, this back road here, we, this part of Texas, we have a, a massive wild pig problem. These things, these wild pigs are gigantic. So the other night I was driving home and all of a sudden, like the side of the road, I, it looked like, okay, there's a little bit of hyperbole. It looked like an elephant, the side of the road. And I'm like, what in the world is that? And I'm like, that's a wild pig. Okay. Lock the doors, keep going. I, I, yeah. I'm in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Okay. And then there's skunks and there's deer and there's just yeah, it's it's like, but you're going through the darkness. You're going through the darkness. And I think spiritually, a lot of times we find ourselves in a little bit of darkness and we need light. And the only light we have is God's word. And for Judah, they were in darkness and they were going to get the light. The eternal son of God was going to come before them. But guess what? They rejected him. They said, crucify him. 
And then real darkness came, 70 AD. Boom, destruction. But does that mean God forgets his promises? I don't believe he does. And I believe the time is coming that a lot of those promises are alluding to not Christ's first coming, but to his second advent when he comes back, destroys the enemies and sets on the throne in Jerusalem. That's the only way I can make sense of some of this, unless I have to start making everything an allegory. And if I'm making everything an allegory in Isaiah, then why not make the, the child being born of a virgin Make it an allegory. We say, well, you can't make that an allegory. Right, because it's said to be literally fulfilled. So why wouldn't the rest of it be literally fulfilled? How can I make some of it literally fulfilled and the rest of it spiritually fulfilled? That's just, to me, seems to be bad hermeneutics. All right, stop right there. Can't wait to hear from everyone. Everyone have a great night. Thanks for listening. Newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.